You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. Okay, thanks. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again to episode number fourteen. Is it fourteen? I believe of Semper Reformanda Radio. I am here with a full house. Uh, I have uh, Owen Pond with us and Tim Shaughnessy as well. And uh, the one talking right now is Carlos Montijo. And uh, so we're uh, from the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. We are one of several podcasts, and uh, we just like. They actually just recently added, not too long ago, the Ladies Left Theology. There's Conversations from the Porch. And there is, of course, the original Wingnuts, the Bible Thumping Wingnuts show. And so, um, speaking about the network, uh, well, aside from that, we're going to actually publish the second part of the discussion that I had with Lewis, Lewis Lyons, uh, about Covenant Theology and New Covenant Theology. Um, but we're also going to address some of the uh, response, the, the three-and-a-half-hour marathon response that uh, the Conversations from the Porch uh, issued out. I think it was in their episode number 18, uh, in response to us, basically. So um, we've got some... We're not, obviously not going to get to everything. We're just going to try to do a get, get like the main points that we thought would be relevant to address um so did you guys want to share anything before we get started i'm good no i'm good uh looking forward to uh to the episode all right so our final quote-unquote final response to cftp i guess so this is um we we a lot has transpired since that last episode since their response uh, things have kind of gone up and down, and it's from what it seems like. I guess they're they're hopefully starting to to go up again in a in a good way. Um, well, since that, um, I guess we've kind of reconciled for the most part with them, and I, we're grateful for that. Um, well, hold on. Um, you may not know that from their last episode. I mean, I'm just saying. Um, the the what we've gotten in private message is a little bit different than what we've gotten 
from their last episode. And uh, Chris did let us know that they recorded the last episode prior to uh, us talking about changing the tone. So, um, but I, I mean, I don't know if they're going to acknowledge that publicly. Uh, so just, I, I mean, you're saying that, but the listeners out there, um, they, they may not be getting that impression, but I'll let you uh, continue on. Yeah, um, you know, they. I guess he did apologize after they had recorded that, so I think he meant to include that in the apology. I mean, to them, I guess it's all a big joke. I mean, everything they say about us is a joke, and so it's meant to be taken as a joke and so on and so forth. This is partly why... And this is partly why we had been wanting from the beginning to have some more direct interaction with them because a lot of this, you know, speaking past us has gotten, has caused a lot of unnecessary problems. And so we're just going to uh, point out some some things that were said. We're going to try to clarify some, some misunderstandings that they had on their part, uh, answer some of their arguments, and, you know, just basically... Uh, wrap that up so it, w really what we want to try to show is that a lot of the things that they said we were doing or uh, guilty of uh, frankly they were actually guilty of just as bad if not worse and I think in in, a lot, in most cases it was actually uh, worse and so again like I don't want to have to you know build back up what we already tore down I mean uh, from what it seems like they're trying to reconcile with us so uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm hoping that things can still continue to move forward. And so, um, you know, this whole thing about like being busy and just being so busy and, and, and just not having the time to like, do, honestly, all of this back and forth has taken much longer than it would have to simply have a, uh, you know, like a, a direct dialogue somehow, somewhere along the line. I think that would have just squashed so much and we're going to try to show that as we answer their arguments because like a lot of these arguments that they make they're basically based on misunderstandings and so we, when we correct the misunderstanding it's like okay well that's it i mean if we were in a in a direct dialogue we could have kind of kept going and gotten a lot more out of it and this is taking hours i mean they took three and a half hours to respond to us i think it would have been a lot easier if we had just tried to coordinate something and just get you know just have a discussion uh so it, well, you know, and then I, uh, yeah. go for it. It, it sounded like you were going to go on to another point. Well, just to add to the same point, I mean, these guys have a, apparently spent a lot of time on Facebook. So, I mean, I think I don't and we all know, I mean, we don't have to go on how the, the messes that have been, you know, brought up on Facebook back and, you know, all this back and forth of it, forth stuff has just been a mess. And so. This is why we wanted from the beginning to simply have a direct and everybody has been wanting this, you know, and it's kind of funny because they, they apparently it looks like the only reason they did it was because their listeners kept asking about it. And so, like, I mean, we really were hoping, I mean, you know, that that, that was why we wanted to do this because I don't want to have to do not, none of us wants to have to do this that like now we have to go back and, and re listen to, to what they said to make sure that, you know, they act to be to show people that what they actually they actually changing what they themselves said originally and then now we have to try to correct that and you know like it's just a nightmare so um we're gonna try to just address everything in this episode 
And well, go ahead, Tim, if you had uh, something to say. Yeah, well, we're not going to address everything, but we're going to address uh, the, the main points. Um, just going back to, I'll just go ahead and jump in here with what I wanted to talk about, and then we can uh, go from there. But uh, we, so I want to just put this out there for everybody. I really feel that we have acted with integrity the entire time. And uh, after listening to their episode, I was really surprised by some of the things that, that they were saying within like the first 10 or 15 minutes because they really portrayed us in the most unfavorable light possible. Now, I mean, they can act like, you know, it was all a joke and it was just in jest and it was, a, it was you know, we like to banter, but uh, not, not in the first uh, 15 minutes when they were talking about us. I mean, uh, a couple of things that they, that they said um, was that, you know, we were, uh, we weren't really critiquing NCT that we're critiquing conversations from the porch. And I just want to let everybody know that from the very beginning, we had actually reached out to Chris uh, prior to even doing one episode. And the reason, and Carlos even uh, even made mention of the reason why we, we wanted to uh, do an episode, uh, why we were doing an episode on them, it was because we were wanting to do an episode with them and so of course you know they, they portrayed us as uh chris said you know we're not going to berate their podcast like they berated us um you know uh paul uh he he was in that uh mega episode he was saying uh you know that we did one episode on them and then he pulled some clips and it was like bam there's another episode and he was like what you know and then bam there's another one and they just kept doing episodes on us. And uh, I mean, we we had let them know that we were going to take up uh, Christopher's gauntlet challenge. And we had also said that we wanted to uh, we wanted to um, give our first impressions of NCT. And let me so he, here's what I want to what I want to read after the very first episode. And this is public after the very first episode that we did. Uh, we got slammed by uh, a gentleman named Matt Della O, who basically said that uh, this podcast was really, really bad, like really bad. And uh, and then he goes on and he makes a complaint. He says, "I think, I think you guys would do well to actually talk to an NCT guy on the podcast and go back and forth, rather than taking cheap shots on points." that only tangentially represent the core hermeneutical approach. He says, you're tired of straw man? Question mark. Cool. Talk to an actual NCT proponent. Okay. Now on this, on this public forum, this is after the very first episode. Uh, I, I responded. I said, we did. Hold on. Let me pull this up. I responded and I said, uh, let me, I said, Oh, we did say that we would like to talk to them, and we have even said we could go on their show, meaning, you know, we'd be fine to go on their show. Uh, so your criticism uh, of that towards us isn't even valid. Hopefully, Christopher Fails would back us up on that on that last point at least. The reason we – and then so, – so here's something very important. I, I wrote this. I said the reason we wanted to, wanted to give them at least two podcasts – on the on the issue first was because we have about 12 of their of theirs to go off on and they don't have anything from us 
Um, and then I said, uh, they uh, then they could take a look at our arguments and go from there. Nobody likes an ambush. So I don't understand why Paul was complaining that we made two episodes. And then even when we had decided to make a third episode because of the stuff that they were putting uh, on, on Facebook and uh, and referencing the quotes that misrepresented uh, reform the reformed view, and we decided to take that up, we let them know that we were going to do another episode. So I don't understand why Paul was saying, you know, they made one episode and then, bam, I was surprised by another episode. It's like we told them that the reason – we wanted to do at least two podcasts was because um, we were hoping to uh, we, we were hoping to um, you know discuss this with them directly and so then uh, Christopher he gets on later and he says uh, he says Tim Shaughnessy sorry what am I backing you up on lol and I said the fact that we have talked to you about doing a show together and then uh, I said and then I said never mind because I, I didn't know if he was going to back me up. I said, never mind. I'll just quote quote it myself. On uh, 7 7 uh, at 4 3 p.m., Carlos said, We'd like to duke it out on the porch. Uh, after, And this was all friendly banter. We'd like to duke it out on the porch after we do an episode on NCT. That way, you guys at least uh, have something to critique us, critique from us, since we have all of your shows. Um, and then Christopher responded, uh, uh, LOL. Okay, sounds fun. LOL. And then so Christopher got uh, after I quoted quoted that myself. Uh, Christopher got on later, and he basically um, uh, let me see. Oh, guys, I lost it. That's fine. While you're looking for it, um, I, this is kind of why we wanted to approach them more specifically about their view of NCT because as everybody knows now and as the porch themselves have made very clear uh, New Covenant theology is not monolithic it's very much like a box of chocolates you just never know what you're gonna get and so um, Carlos you can say that with a straight face you, you didn't laugh even inside when you said that yeah that, that was a joke that was a, I was laughing inside right <laughs> and uh, but you know so we were just really confused as to why, you know, like Paul also made a statement about he's not get, he's not going to give us a roadmap to rob his house. It's like I, I don't, I really don't understand. You know, we made our intentions clear from the beginning, and so we were just trying to basically try to give them as much as we could, so that they could have something to work from because we had like eleven or twelve of their episodes at at the time. Right, so I mean, it's we were just trying to, we were actually trying to be courteous, uh, like like Tim was saying, and uh, so again, we, I mean, we're trying to point these things out in love because there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding as to what the actual problem was, and um, it, it seems like they kind of like, I guess, maybe forgot or didn't really, I don't know what happened, you know, I guess they didn't, they they didn't understand us or or something just got totally lost. And even though we were, I mean, this was pretty much clear from the beginning. And so um, th this is why we also said that, uh, uh, you know, like our willingness to engage them was always, and it, and it wasn't to debate necessarily, like it wasn't to cut them down or to just, you know, it was to have a discussion. Like that was what 
we had also said we were open to that from the beginning. So I, I just, I, it was all very, uh, it, it just very disappointing how things just kind of fell out that way. And so, you know, I don't know if, did you find the quote, Tim, or? No, I actually deleted it, um, unfortunately. But um, basically, Christopher got on there and uh, and he said that, yeah, doing a show would be fun, uh, like we talked about. And uh, I remember what he said, but he, he affirmed what I said. And then he said, yeah, doing a show in the future, uh, you know, uh, would be fun or something like that. And he said, like we talked about. And so Christopher admitted publicly that, you know, we had, we had talked to him about doing a show. And so my whole thing, our whole thing was, look, we don't have anything out there on NCT. Nobody likes um, an ambush. If you, and if you look at guys like James White, he criticizes people for not going and looking up um, his positions on things. And uh, he'll spend a lot of time looking at arguments from his opponents. And by the way, guys, uh, we, we think your brother's in the Lord, so don't take that opponent's, uh, you know, to the bank. Uh, we're, we're not saying that your opponent's uh, of the cross or anything like that. So, um, but, you know, when, when he debates, he, he goes and he researches his opponents. Well, we have at least, we had at least 12 episodes to go off on to look at their arguments, to see what they were saying. They had nothing on us. And so we did it as, as you know, trying to be considerate of them. And we told Chris, you know, uh, that we were going to pick up the, we, we told all of them that we are going to pick up the gauntlet, that we are going to, uh, and, and if you listen to the first episode, I mean, we didn't even get to address the gauntlet in, in, in the first place. So um, they knew that we were going to do another episode. And then Chris even uh, joked with us about, you know, that they were going to make the Hornet their official mascot and uh you know so the impression that that we were getting from the beginning uh was that they were going to take our clips that they were going to critique them and that's what paul said on the bible thumping wingnut um episode and um you know uh where does it say in uh in proverbs that you know if you, if you give an answer before you hear it's to your shame and your folly well, now Paul's trying to say, well, I said that before I even knew you guys, and he, he's trying to, he was trying to take it back, uh, sort of making us out to be the problem. And so we were, it, it was just really surprising to hear them say that we were berating their, their, their podcast when we were just trying to give them content because we were inviting them to critique it um, in a mature way. And, uh, and, you know, Paul was, you know, acting like he was surprised by the fact that there was another episode after the first one. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, we, I mean, uh, you, you knew that there is, that we're going to do at least two episodes on you. Uh, at least Chris knew that. So I, I don't, he, he even asked us, uh, when we were going to do the next episode because he had some advice to give us for the first one. So, he's sitting there listening to that and it's like, do you, do you not remember this? Or, and they basically just painted us in the most unfavorable light possible. And I, I don't know. I just, I thought it was very, very uncharitable. Um, I'm sure that they'll uh, joke about it and uh, call each other uncharitable, uh, but whatever. I don't, I don't care. Well, again, I don't want to, I don't want to build up what's already been torn down and and it's hard this is a difficult situation once again because they published this episode and, and we're not exactly sure 
how much they still stand on on what with respect to that episode but this is again why and and this is partly why we were so taken aback because you know we're trying to engage them and then at, at some point Paul and Chris said that they basically changed their minds that they're no longer going to engage us you know they that you know they changed their minds they don't want to engage us and so they basically told everybody to just stay quiet and not interact with us and so it makes like no sense because they're the ones who are setting up to define NCT they're the ones who are trying to you know make you know make like get people to uh, you know promote an NCT and we're actually trying to take them seriously and engage them and yet they just basically like shut everything down on us and so and that's fine like if they don't want to that's fine. like I don't we're not going to force them to do something they don't want to do I would have preferred for them not to do the response either I mean I would have just preferred like if they don't want to they should have just to told us from the beginning instead of just like shutting down and making us look bad um, I'm not saying that that was their intention but I'm just saying like it basically made us look bad or whatever because we're we're trying to ask them questions about what they believe or what their specific brand of NCT is and so like it just really took us aback it's like well I mean what you know you didn't tell us that they should have just told us that from the beginning but they kept giving us mixed signals like okay well you don't know that we might be responding we might be preparing an answer like it just it, it was never clear what their intentions were and so we kept kind of like I guess we we expressed a lot of frustration in our previous episodes for that reason because it's like we don't really know what they're gonna do and everybody you know was expecting or wanting for us to do have some kind of a direct interaction even Len you know obviously that was pretty big when Len said that he was looking forward to you know uh, the porch responding and, and having even having a debate and so obviously like everybody was kind of expecting and looking forward to that and then like they just basically totally had flipped the script on us and I, I know they said some of the reasons were uh, I guess you know they were disappointed uh, they they thought that we discredited ourselves uh, I guess so on and so forth and again like not I, I'm, I'm we're trying to be uh, careful about the all of this stuff we, we don't know where they're at necessarily about all this but we do want to show that if anything they, they can accuse us of, of discrediting ourselves that's fine okay fine but we're gonna show that they are pretty much guilty and a, a lot of times pretty much all the time ten times guilty of everything that they had accused us of in the response. So and again, we're just so, go so ahead, go ahead. Sixty percent of the time, they're guilty every time. No, no one. <laughs> right. Look, my. Yeah. I, I mean, there have been multiple, and it's not just us who thought we were going to engage with them, right? There have been multiple people who have reached out to try to set up some sort of dialogue between us, third-party groups who wanted to hear us interact directly, and. Uh, constantly shut down. Oh, so, and, oh, and, oh, and, <laughs> hey, brother, you need to calm down. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You're you're becoming a little unhinged. Okay. I uh, take a breath. Just, all right. Just don't take any <laughs> pictures of me. <laughs> you're starting. You're you're starting to sound like that grumpy old Clint Eastwood. Get off my porch. Yeah, yeah. let's just. You know, let's I just keep an eye. Being compared to Clint Eastwood is probably the best compliment I've received in years. So I'll take it. <laughs> all right. All right. Keep my, going. Yeah. My problem with NCT has never, well, my problem in this whole thing has never been with NCT itself. Do I think NCT is wrong? Yeah. 
Of course I do. Do I have questions for it? Yeah. Would I like to engage with people? Of course. But that's, that's normal, right? There's a lot of stuff that we think is wrong and you want to engage and have dialogue. I mean, that's kind of why you're in this space. You would think why you're in the podcasting space or in a Facebook group. So that's nothing special or particular about NCT. My concern is and has always been with the way in which this particular group engages, the way they engage their conversation partners, the way they engage arguments, the way they engage history, it is largely disrespectful and dismissive. And we've shown that throughout the course of our, our podcast. For example, look at the history episode where they uh, paint the, the authors of the 1689 in a terrible light and in a way that goes completely against the way that those authors themselves spoke about it and including the text that they wrote in the confession. That's what's always concerned me. Even before I came on uh, Semper Reformanda Radio, I actually invited them on my podcast, Ask a Millennial Christian. I was in a thread with Paul and uh, another one, I think Justin. Um, and, and, you know, we had a discussion about the origins of Baptists and was there really an unbroken chain because they had posted something and said they agreed with it. And I was like, oh, well, let's talk about this because I kind of come from a landmark background. So I've, I, I've heard of this theory in general. And they were like, well, we don't agree with landmarkism. And if you don't know what it is, don't look it up. Um, and I was like, oh, Oh, well, then let's talk about what you believe in. And the response at the end was, you're not worth my time. Oh, okay. I thought you were here to talk about things. So I asked them on my podcast. I was shut down. I come on this podcast. You know, actually, maybe I'm the, the thread here. They, they don't want to come on my podcast, Ask Millennial Christian. Now I'm on SRR. They don't want to come on here either. So maybe you guys should start blaming me for this. Well, they don't have to talk to you, Owen. They can talk to me or they can talk to Tim. You're just a grumpy yeah. old man. I, I'm a so, grumpy old man. So but there's a standing invitation, right? We don't shut any doors, though they're the ones who have shut the doors to dialogue. We haven't done that. And in general, this is clearly not a constructive way to dialogue. And it's all the more disheartening when it, it seems to be so common in the Christian online world. And I would actually largely blame one group in particular for cultivating this sort of uh, environment of hostility and aggression uh, and then just kind of kicking those people out and, and to encounter everyone else in all the other groups. Um, but that's my own of the history of how this has come to pass over the past couple of years. And in any case, look, we hope to cover many topics here on Semper Reformanda Radio uh, that may well include NCT. You know, we think it's an error and there's things we want to talk about. It's, it's a way to view uh, redemptive history. Uh, so it, on that level, it's important to talk about, but it's not going to be the only thing that we cover. Uh, in fact, it was never even one of the main things we wanted to cover. I know Tim and Carlos, you guys had a ton of ideas before this sort of popped up and overtook everything because you were placed within a, a relational network and in, in conversation with these funny conversation, conversations from the porch, conversations on the porch. Um, and, you know, in any case, moving forward, any, any listener, feel free to send us your questions to tell me if I'm. I'm wrong on this email address, semperreformandaradio at gmail.com. I believe that's the email. Um, I'm not going to spell it. <laughs> you guys can just click in the show notes. There should be a link. Um, and that's really all I have to say about the, the, the meta-narrative of the debate that's been going, or the non-debate that's been going on between our shows. And I know there's a couple of points that you guys wanted to respond to uh, in response to their response. But I, you know, if this is how it's going to be and this is not what we anticipated, then I look forward to moving on and engaging with people who do want to engage. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what we're trying to point this out in brotherly love um, because we're just trying to show that, you know, the porch has been giving us very mixed impressions, very confusing 
signals and impressions and like it, it just we we were very much taken aback by it everybody has been taken aback by it, frankly um i know a lot of people have been very disappointed at how at at the fact that the porch simply has for whatever reason not been wanting to engage with us but that's you know that's fine if they don't want to that's fine they should have just said that from the beginning that's all we're saying um you guys should have just said that from the beginning we could have all moved on and uh and so uh going that being said now there was something going on to the the mega response now something that um paul i guess one of the pr first things that paul addressed uh when i accused him of totally you know misrepresenting making a false uh accusation about the confession uh in that it prohibits lay evangelism or or you know lay people from event do you know doing public evangelism and so um we're going to use this as, as an example basically to, to to show these things and so um paul basically in his response said that he stood by everything he said and that you know nothing was going to change and he basically gave like he he's okay so he said he was referring. He was not referring to the Westminster confession. Confession that he was referring to the Belgic confession, and so he played the Scarecrow song for me, saying that I misrepresented him. And this is the mess that we're talking about, folks. Because if we had just sat down and talked it through together, in a more uh, live, you know, direct forum, we could have squashed this much quick a lot quicker now jd hall's talking about this because somebody asked jd hall about the accusation that that paul made about the confession supposedly prohibiting the public evangelism from from lay people and so um what happened was paul said and i guess you know he paul said he meant or he was referring to the belgian confession but that's not what he said originally originally he said if you're a covenant theologian and you public pre and you preach publicly as a lay person then you have scruples or something like that. And then he said, if you are a Presbyterian, um, that then and you you do public evangelism, you have scruples with the confession. Okay, so he said Presbyterian, and that is exactly why I was looking in the Westminster Confession because Presbyterians hey, Carlos, prescribe Carlos. to the Westminster Confession. Yes, go ahead. Let me let me correct you. Um, he did not say the word Presbyterian. He referenced the Westminster Confession. No, I, I think it's the other way around. He said, "If you're a Presbyterian, you have scruples." Right, with in the any, in either case, he was referring. He, the The point of reference was the Westminster Confession. That, exactly. That that, that's what, from yeah, exactly. That's why I brought it up, and that's why I only referred to that confession because that is the only confession that Presbyterians subscribe to. Now, I don't know if he was aware of that. Maybe he just wasn't aware of that, and he thought he could appeal to the Belgic Confession as well, which is again, it's just showing what we've been pointing out from the beginning that these folks do not represent or know how to represent reformed theology accurately because the belgic confession comes from the three forms of unity which is a continental reformed uh dutch reformed uh primarily uh confessional standard it does not apply to presbyterians they don't consider it binding yeah do they agree with a lot of it sure there's a lot of overlap there's no doubt about that but they don't subscribe to that confession and so i don't know if he knew that maybe he didn't know that and he thought he could just, you know, go back to that one because he's he was talking about how, oh yeah, there's several confessions and this, that, and the other, and you know, so this is this is the mess that 
has well, become hey, a Well, hey, first of all, first of all, if he didn't know that Presbyterians hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, then that's a huge problem in of itself. And well, that I know he knows that. Okay, he knows well, that. Then, and he knows what I don't that. Think, he what did I don't he think. did reference the he did reference the Westminster Confession of Faith and then he said so if you go out and you do street preaching then you're no longer confessional. And so we took up we, we looked in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and when we were trying to find it, he was talking about the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, and we couldn't find it. And so if if he doesn't know what Presbyterians hold to, then that's, a, that, I mean, that's kind of establishing our point as well. Yeah, and I, I don't know if, if we have the clip, hopefully we can play it just to show because I, I'm pretty... I think Paul knows that Presbyterians subscribe to the Westminster Confession. Apparently, it sounded like he thought that they also prescribed to the Belgian Confession, uh, which is, again, it's it's just not... I mean, for you to not realize that, uh, it just really shows either the level of um, lack of, of depth of knowledge that you have of the Reformed tradition, and that either, you know, or you were just basically, I guess, trying to show that you were never wrong, you know, sh shifting the sand, basically. Yeah, or let's, uh, I mean, if you yeah. take that in the most charitable light and say, of course, Paul knows the Presbyterians hold to Westminster, and he made this argument, and he meant to say that it came from the Belgic Confession, right? Let's take this in the best possible light. Instead of, instead of listening to what he said in our response uh, and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I misspoke. This is what I meant to say, right? And then we all move on. He doubled down when it's very clear from the context that, that in that statement, even if he misspoke, he was referring to the Westminster Confession. And we were right in calling out that that's not actually in the confession. But instead, what do we see? The same thing that we've always seen, a, a refusal to engage with your dialogue uh, opponents and portraying them in this negative light. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. When he responded to that, he just basically said, "This is why this is such a mess." Because it's like, okay, so he accused me of misrepresenting him, but he was actually either knowingly or unknowingly misrepresenting the Reformed tradition, specifically the Presbyterian subscribing to only to uh, officially to the Presby the Westminster Confession. So he refers to Article 30 of the Belgic Confession to try to prove his point, and so. Honestly, if all you had to do, you don't even have to read the whole article. You can just read the, the title of it, and you would have known exactly what it was talking about. Uh, article 30 says, the government of and offices in the church. So already this is telling you that this is talking about the prescriptions that the, that the scriptures um, establish for what you do inside the church, not outside of it. And, and I want to read back the, the, the 29th article because it's very informative as to what exactly is that the Protestants were so concerned with. Their main concern was defining what a true church is. This is a very important question, especially in light of the Roman Catholic Church and them breaking away from it. It's still a very important question. How do you recognize what a, what a true biblical church is? And this is the very question that they set out to answer in the confession. And so in Article 29, it's the marks of the true church and wherein she differs from the false church. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read everything. I'm just going to read the main, the main part. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledges the only head of the church, 
hereby the true church may be certainly known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. So, as you can see, the big issue here is defining what the biblical church is. And there's, historically speaking, from a Protestant perspective, which is really the biblical perspective, is you have a pure preaching of the word, the faithful preaching and teaching of the word, the, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the uh, exercise of church discipline by, by obviously, by implication. It's, it's implying that all of those three things will fall in line if you're preaching the word faithfully and also applying it faithfully. And so Article 30 is just basically expanding that same concept. And so Article 30 says, We believe that this true church must be governed by that spiritual policy which our Lord hath taught us in His Word, namely, that there must be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and to administer the sacraments. Also elders and deacons who together with the pastors from the council of the church, that by these means the true religion may be preserved and true doctrine everywhere propagated, likewise transgressors punished and restrained by spiritual means, also that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to the necessities. By these means everything will be carried on in the church with good order and decency when faithful men are chosen according to the rule prescribed by St. Paul in his epistle to Timothy. So clearly, as you can see, it is talking about the functions, the proper functions that are operating in the church. It is talking about the office of a pastor and elders and deacons and so on and so forth. It is not, it is it, nowhere in here does it say that lay people cannot publicly evangelize. That's just absurd. It is an absurd accusation, and it's pat it is false. It is patently false. And what happened was, um, basically, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read from the because, uh, and and I knew I knew what was going to happen from the beginning. I already knew that when I made that accusation, I knew that Paul was going to go and try to look into other places to try to find it. And so I already knew he was going to go here in the larger catechism, in the larger catechism. Uh, there's there's two there's a rel I guess he quoted the question uh, 158 in the larger catechism which says by whom is the word of God to be preached uh, the answer is the word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office the problem with the, and he was saying that this applies to why lay people can't publicly evangelize outside of the church but again the context if you look at the context of of this question it's clearly explaining that this is the office of a pastor. It is the qualifications of a pastor, which ironically, I think and hope that he would agree with this definition because it is talking about preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God in the church. And to show you even further, question 159 says, how is the word of God to be preached by those that are called thereunto? They that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine diligently in season and out of season plainly not in enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit of the spirit and of power, faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers, zealously with fervent love of God, love to God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming at his glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation. So it's talking about preaching in the context of, of a church. So, and honestly, it, this is why. We're, this is exactly why we're pointing this out because they've clearly shown repeatedly that they have a very shallow misunderstanding of reformed theology this shows that plainly like it's just false it would have been much easier for paul to simply admit that it was wrong unfortunately it just made a bigger mess and so Carlos, go ahead Owen. Uh, yeah, go ahead. i just that's too much content that's too much context N nobody cares that that's not that doesn't sell drama sells and scandal sells 
So unfortunately, if you keep giving content in context like this, nobody's going to listen to our show. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. they and to, they, he quoted a bunch of confessions. It wasn't just the Belgian confession. He quoted the, I think, the Scots confession. He quoted a bunch of other confessions. Was basically basically said the same thing. They're all talking about how you preaching the Bible in or the gospel in the church, which was a shorthand for preaching the Bible. So hey it, it was just grossly misreading it out of context. Go ahead. Uh, let me go ahead and play the clip because uh, I mean we're we're saying that they can't represent us accurately, and so we need to strive to represent them accurately. Uh, so we can squash this all right now. So let me go ahead and Please. play the clip. Give me that a few seconds. Fantastic idea. You have to understand that the majority of people who hold to confessions have scruples. You know. Most of them have scruples when it comes to the confession. There's things that they allow. Let me tell you, every covenant theologian that's out there on the streets, street preaching, has scruples. Because the confession prohibits any man who is not ordained to preach the gospel. And so once a Presbyterian steps up on a soapbox, guess what? You're no longer confessional according to their definition. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you have to be confessional to be saved is what so many say. <laughs> Gotta get some calls for that one yeah, too. No, no, no. But but that but that's true. Well that seems right. pretty clear. Yeah, so uh, he I, I I think we were both right. He referenced the confession and he said Presbyterians. Yeah, he did not refer to the Westminster Confession explicitly. Uh so, okay. Well, he, he refers well, he says to once a, Presby a Presbyterian is no longer confessional when they do that. And what confession do Presbyterians hold to? Exactly. That was well, why I quoted it. So, so here, here's, here's why it's really, really bad. Not only can they not represent themselves accurately, um, if it, our whole point was that you're straw manning. And then he basically said that, you know, we're misrepresenting them, which we're not. And, uh, and you know, they're saying that we're ignorant of NCT and we're not, you know, we're not worthy to <laughs> to debate them or discuss things with them. Uh, I mean, that's the impression that I've gotten. But uh, with, with Christopher telling us, you know, I keep telling these guys they're not ready. And um, but here's the thing. I mean, look how bad this is. Do you not understand? Do you not know that that uh, Presbyterians hold to the to the Westminster Confession of Faith? I mean, represent yourself accurately, and and he does know that because they they uh, they mentioned that in in the podcast in in their podcast they do know that. So represent it accurately. Just I mean, have the integrity to say you know, oops, said something wrong, uh, and and move on. But now we've got this headache of trying to go back and having to readdress this so that our listeners know exactly what happened and that that is a misrepresentation. Yeah, we shouldn't have to exegete this sentence. Like the word the, the in English is a definite article. It means you are referring to a specific thing. Confession, singular, means one, does not mean multiple. Next sentence talks about Presbyterians in reference to the confession, calls the Presbyterian confessional adjective, referring back to the noun. So like this is ridiculous. That sentence is very clear. The concept is very clear. If Paul made a mistake or misspoke, I understand that happens. We all do it. But don't try to hoist that on us and try to show that we are misrepresenting you because that is patently false yeah i think i think he was you know i'm trying to let you know we can try to be charitable and just say 
he you know we he thought we genuinely misunderstood him or whatever and I did reach out to him privately and tried to show him these things beforehand and he, you know it kind of sounded like he he sort of still he didn't really agree with what I was pointing out to him well he ended up saying that I would make for a good Presbyterian but I don't know I don't know if that meant he agreed or I wasn't sure but um, so like and then you know Chris had also mentioned he tried to reinforce the point that Paul, Pastor Paul was making uh, by saying that you know the 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 they 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 hold the 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 confession makes a very close relationship between the preaching of the word and the right administration of the sacraments. Well, yeah, that's exactly what the definition of a true church is, and that's why they do that. It's not talking about preaching outside of the context of the church. So, um, again, we wanted to clear that up, and. Um, the uh, so now uh, the next point I guess that we can go over is the uh, one of the things that really got out of hand was when in our episode uh, when we talked about the the Baptist confessions I think I said something like they don't believe that you should use the law to preach to Gentiles and um, um, I guess it kind of made a, a big mess on their their Facebook group and. Um, they were saying that we were either grossly ignorant or slandering and this that and the other and you know so and I don't know I don't think they're holding that against us I, well I don't know I don't know what's going on with them right now about that but um, I did just want to clarify that this is the and I did kind of clarify that in the discussion with Lewis that I was saying that it seems like a lot of New Covenant theology guys um, don't preach they, they, they make a very strong point of not preaching that you shouldn't preach the, the Ten Commandments to the uh, Gentiles because that you, you're not supposed to bind them under the codified expression that was meant only for Jews at the time. And so um, we took some timestamps of that uh, from, so starting, one of those was episode number five of the, of the conversation from the porch in about one hour and 26 minutes. Uh, Justin says that uh, Chris will probably make their evangelism book about how to not use the law and they were referencing a booklet or a book that uh, Pastor Paul and Brother Chris were gonna write about evangelizing from a New Covenant theology perspective and so Justin was making that joke about how they how to not use the law and so an episode the same episode in about one minute uh, one hour 29 minutes Paul said that we can use the Mosaic law but only for wisdom or instruction lawfully not to buy that is in other words not to bind men's consciousness consciences which is that was the impression I was getting and also in episode 7 he said that um, that uh, you you know it, it's it's not meant to be law it's meant to be like wisdom and instruction so it, that, that's what was very confusing to, that's why I was so confused because it sounded like they were saying almost yes and no in, in, a, in a very confusing way and so um, this is why we, we were trying to point this out and then in episode number six, uh, about 23 minutes in, Paul says that when he dropped the good person test, he still held on to the Decalogue and that he pounded into himself, into his family, his kids, etc., etc., basically implying that it was still wrong to hold on to that, you know, to, to that view. And so, and then in episode number six, uh, about 27 minutes into that one, Justin says that we don't put anyone under the Mosaic Law when we're preaching which which obviously that includes the, the Decalogue and then at the end of that he recommends reading David Gay and what's funny is that you know what is, okay so what does David Gay think about this so if you look at David's gay book Christ is all um, it's pretty 
it's pretty clear what he what he thinks. And uh, so I'm going to read just a couple quotes from his book. So in in page 39 of the, of Christ is all, he says, "Likewise, Paul used the law when preaching to the Jews, for uh, as in his defense against the Jews, speaking of our people and the customs of our fathers. But never once did he use the law when addressing Gentile unbelievers. Why not? Because he only used the law when he when he would when he could say, "I speak to those who know the law." None of this was an accident. The preachers of the New Testament knew where their unconverted hearers were coming from. They knew that the Jews had the law, and therefore the gospel preachers were able to use it. The Gentiles did not have the law, so they did not refer to them to it. And then in page, uh, I can't remember what page this is, I think it's page 82, he's addressing Calvin's three uses of the law. And he says, thus Calvin enunciated his first two uses of the law, to prepare sinners for Christ and restrain sin in the unregenerate. He was sadly mistaken on both counts. Even so, he has been followed by many. What can law do for a sinner? Let me conclude with a biblical summary. Unlike Calvin's first and second uses, it is all negative. The law does not restrain sin in a natural man. On the contrary, it excites it in him. The law cannot regenerate a, a sinner dead in sin. The law cannot restrain sin in the sinner, nor does it prepare a sinner for Christ. Calvin was wrong on both counts. So much for Calvin's first and second uses of the law. So here he's obviously giving a very clear uh uh, expression that you're not supposed to use the, the Mosaic law, which obviously that would include the Decalogue according to New Covenant teaching because they believe it's a unit and that you shouldn't use it for preaching to Gentiles. And that's why I was so confused by everything that they were saying on the porch because um, not only that, you know, in episode 7 uh, of the porch that in about 44 minutes into that they say no one is under the Decalogue, not even the Jews. And so I think that's when Pastor Paul said that it was useful for wisdom and prophecy, but again, like it, it wasn't meant to be uh, in the sense that uh, uh, used as as a law to be convicting or or accusing Gentiles of breaking it. And so, in episode fourteen, uh, twenty five minutes into that, uh, Chris claims no one in the New Testament ever preached to the Gentiles with the Old Testament law, uh, very similar to what David Gay says. He also, and also uh, twenty seven minutes, he says something similar. And then he claims that you can use the Ten Commandments to show God's character, but not to, con you know, something like not to convict Gentiles with it. And then in the same episode, 40 minutes into that, uh, they clarify that you could use the Ten Commandments. So it's almost like they kind of contradicted themselves uh, a little bit there. And, and again, in an hour, 22 minutes, uh, 50, and about an hour, 22 minutes, they say, uh, Paul says, the pastor Paul said that, Men don't need to be beat up with the moral law of God and because they already know that they're sinners. And then he says a little bit later on that he didn't club the heckler with the Mosaic law because he thinks it's more biblical not to. So the, the clear impression that I was getting from these guys is that they have a bias for not using the law, specifically the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments. And so even even you can even see how this this extends into when they say things like, Ultimately, people go to hell for rejecting Christ rather than for being, you know, like basically law-breaking sinners. Like this is kind of what I think is a major problem in NCT and that it oversimplifies the biblical teaching. Because if you look at passages like in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6 or and in uh, Revelation where it's talking about specific types of sinners will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know, adulterers, liars, drunkards, none. It's, it's pointing out specific sins, it, you know. But in an NCT perspective, every one of those sins would basically be Christ rejector, Christ rejector, Christ rejector. 
And it's like, that's not quite the uh, full teaching of the Bible. Yeah, of course you can say ultimately in a sense, if you reject Christ, you're going to hell. But you're not just going to hell for rejecting Christ. You're going to hell for everything else that you, all of the laws that you broke, uh, all of the, the moral law that you broke every day uh, of God. And so uh, this is why it was so confusing, you know, to kind of, to kind of uh, make sense out of what they're saying. So we're trying to point this out again, just to submit this to them to see if maybe they can clarify, uh, so on and so forth. And so uh, I wanted to also clarify the uh, the uh, that the, the this is one thing. This is our position now. the The law is actually vitally and very vital and necessary. It, it is a part. It is a fundamental part of the gospel. Be, why? Because as First Corinthians fifteen says, Christ died for our sins, and there uh, you cannot have a concept of sin without having uh, a concept of law. Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, which is, that's Romans 7, 7. And again, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's 1 John 3, 4. And then uh, Romans 4, 15 says, the law brings about wrath, for there is, where there is no law, there is no transgression. So that is why this is partly part of the misunderstanding that they were having about reform preparationism, and that, yeah, there was an extreme form that you had to preach the law, and yeah, we agree that's not always necessary to preach the law, but it is absolutely necessary for a sinner to be convicted of his sins and have a have an understanding of God's law in order to actually come to Christ. Because it's like if you don't know what you're saved from, then what are you saved from? You know. So that's uh, just a clarification that we wanted to make. And uh, so now, let me. Uh, uh... we, let me, let me jump in uh, and just give those Bible references. Uh, so uh, Revelation 21, verse 8, uh, references specific um, sins. Uh, all liars will have their part. Murderers, idolaters, sorcerers. I'm, I'm not reading it, so I don't. Uh, but I know liars is in there. It references uh, specific sins uh, that people are actually condemned for. And it's not just uh, you Christ rejecter. And then uh, the other one that you referenced was uh, Galatians 5, and um, that would be verse 19 through 21. At the end, of it lists, uh, you know, uh, things like immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Uh, and then at the end of, of uh, verse 21, it says, uh, uh, for such things, uh, for uh, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I just want to give that to our listeners so that, that way they they can check that out for themselves. Yeah, thank you. So I guess now we can move on to, uh, and I apologize for my, if I sound kind of nasal, uh, I've, I've had some allergies, so. Yeah, I think, you got sick. I think you got sick in like the last 10 minutes. Um, but let me, uh, before, before we move on, let me go ahead and I found that quote from Christopher Fales. And uh, so this is this is a. Uh, I basically asked him to back me up on on the point that I was making to that uh, gentleman Matt Della O, where I said, uh, you know, that we uh, we even reached out to them to do a joint podcast, and uh, and then I quoted uh, the conversation myself. Uh, Christopher later gets on, and uh, this is uh, he made this comment on July twenty second at four twenty nine p.m. on on um, the uh, the Bible thumping wingnut page. He says Tim Shaughnessy. Yeah, maybe sometime in the future we can do a joint podcast as we talked about. So 
the I just wanted I just wanted uh, to read that so that way nobody thinks that I'm uh, misrepresenting him. He publicly acknowledged that we had talked about doing a joint podcast, and I had basically said the reason that we were doing at least two episodes on them was so that they could have something cr to critique. We were trying to be considerate uh, because nobody likes an ambush, and that way they could at least hear some of our arguments before doing a joint podcast. And so the impression that he was giving us was, you know, yeah, you know, maybe we can do that. That sounds that sounds cool. LOL, you know. Um, so we can, we can move on now. Uh, I just wanted to let everybody know. Yeah. So, um, moving on to, uh, I guess to Christopher, to brother Chris's, uh, gauntlet response to our, and you know, laying down the gauntlet, um, about the law, about the threefold, you know, division of the law. I'm going to read a brief quote from his, his article, uh, Basically, his 12-page response to our, you know, answer to his challenge. Uh, he says, a few months ago, I issued a challenge on our podcast for any Reformed Christian to point me to a specific passage of Scripture that explicitly shows the Ten Commandments could be separated from the rest of the Law of Moses. And so, uh, this th there was a big misunderstanding. Basically, if we were able to talk on a, you know, if we had been able to engage each other more directly, we could have squashed this right away because this is based like Chris's uh, response on the mega sh on the mega show and on the article was based on a, like a total misunderstanding of what the reform position actually is, and the and like again I brought this up a little bit in my conversation with uh, Lewis, uh, where the reform teaching is not that we break apart the ref the mosaic law into three separate parts like that that's just kind of ridiculous. I've never heard any reform theologian say that. And the confessions don't use that terminology either. The confessions simply distinguish those three aspects of the law. And there's actually a very helpful quote by Calvin uh, as to why, partly why that is. It's because the Bible distinguishes them. And Chris, even uh, Brother Chris, actually acknowledged that in his article to some extent. So he actually agrees. I mean, we actually, ultimately, we basically kind of agree for the most part on this issue. And it was just a total misunderstanding. Um, but just you know, they've made some other. I forgot who made this comment about how nowhere in the old in the Bible does it does it distinguish or does it make the Ten Commandments stand out above all the rest. And that's actually not true. Uh, the Bible. There's several places in the Bible where, uh, you know, for example, the the law of written in stone by the finger of God. The only commandments that were written in stone by the finger of God were the Ten Commandments. Uh, that's Exodus 24:12 and 32:16. Uh, 34 1 and 28 and the also spoken by God that's Exodus 20 verse 1 and the rest of the laws were actually written uh, the the rest of the laws were actually written by a uh, in Exodus 24 4 and 34 27 and spoken by Moses so they were not actually directly spoken by God the way the Ten Commandments were and then only I'm sorry, there's a lot of scripture references here, but most of them are from Exodus. Exodus 21, 1 and 24, 3. Only the Ten Commandments or tablets of stone were also placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So they were clearly distinguished. There's no doubt about that. That's Exodus 25, 16, 40 and 40, 20, Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 6, 1 Kings 8 and 9, Hebrews 9 and 4. And I want to read, I want to read Deuteronomy 4, 13. It says, And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, 
and he wrote them on two ta tablets of stone. So that's that's a clear distinction of the Ten Commandments. They they are clearly distinguished above, you know, as basically a summary of the entire law. And that's exactly what Christ said. The two commandments are a summary of the entire law, and the the Ten Commandments are a summary of those two. That's another problem that NCT has that they can't seem to they they can't seem to they have a serious problem in in being able to uh, reconcile that because that is what Jesus himself said. It's the same law um, in terms of the, uh, the the two great commandments being the uh, summary of the, the the ten commandments. And if it's a summary, that means that I can I can point out any one of those ten and still be within that summary and still have it be the same law. So um, just something to point out there. It was kind of you know we could have spared brother Chris twelve pages of no, of you know having to write this stuff out if we had just talked about it from the beginning. You know so. Uh, go yeah, ahead. and not only that, but they could have spared you a tremendous amount of time having to go back and re-listen to all the episodes, uh, and and me as well, <laughs> uh, having to go go through and look up uh, you know Facebook conversations and try to dig stuff up just to just to point out that you know we're we're representing things accurately. Um, that I think I really believe that they've they've sort of said something. And then they've modified their position after we've like basically criticized them for it. Um, I, I I think that they've done that a, a number of times, and it gets old. It, it gets it's extremely exhausting when you were going through all those uh, episodes and the timestamps. I was like, oh man, you you were listening to way too much conversations from the porch this last week. So, oh yeah. Uh it was a bit of a nightmare, and that's not an insult to them. I just, like, <laughs> had already heard this stuff. And the reason it was such a nightmare is because the reason we had to do it was because there was so much uh, misrepresentation and misunderstanding going on. And so we're, we're trying to point this out in love and, and to just really show where we're coming from because um, th this is exactly what we did not want to happen. And... Um, so here and I have a few quotes from the Heidelberg Catechism uh, you know some of the terminology there is how are the question 93 for example says how are these commandments divided you know the Ten Commandments how are they divided and the answer is into two tables the first which teaches us how we, we must behave toward God the second what duties we owe to our neighbor so the, the division you know division distinction thing it's not it doesn't necessarily mean by division that we are you know, separating out into whole separate law that you know, and it's no longer the law of Moses. Like that, that, that doesn't even make any sense. And unfortunately, that's what that's a systemic, systemic misrepresentation and misunderstanding of covenant theology of new covenant theology that that new covenant theology has of covenant theology. I've heard, I mean, it's just one of those really major misrepresentations that that doesn't seem to be, you know, it, it's just a misunderstanding. And so um, there's another, yeah, I guess I can skip this stuff, but from the other confessions, but um, so the, yeah, and yeah, I have the, the if you read the, the chapter 19 of the London Baptist Confession, the second London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession, they don't even use that terminology anyway. They just make those, the categories, the distinctions between the three, the, the moral, ceremonial, and civil. And uh, there's many, re we've already pointed that out, many reasons why 
the that's the biblical teaching and just to point just to kind of accentuate one uh, for example with respect to kings you know the three those three types of laws really corresponded to the three types of offices in the nation of Israel which was pr uh, priests prophets and kings and so the priests were restricted basically to the ceremonial laws the prophets to the moral law uh, and the kings to the civil law Be and this is very clear from the Bible because a priest couldn't just get up and start punishing people for breaking civil laws you know so it it's not like this is a this is plainly taught in the Bible it's just a it's not, and and I think another part of how this is misunderstood is that, you know, the fact that there's overlap and it's, you know, it's like we're not saying that there's no overlap. We're not, in fact, part of the reform teaching is that the civil law is actually an application of the moral law to the civil or judicial uh, setting. So it's, I mean, I think a lot of this is just a lot of talking past each other. And you know them talking past us a lot, and and not not understanding the reform theology uh, f from the beginning, and just carrying on and just making a whole bunch of you know expressing a bunch of misunderstandings that could have been very easily addressed. And yeah, so, and it, it was. Uh, I want everybody out there to know that it was never our intention to uh, talk past each other. We uh, we thought that they were going to critique uh, our clips from uh, based on what. Uh, what what they had said, what Paul had said, and Christopher agreed, um, and so we were wanting to interact with them directly. Uh, and I'll just throw it out there that Andrew Rappaport reached out to us, and uh, and the uh, you weren't initially going to have a discussion with Lewis uh, because Andrew wanted to get conversations from the porch and uh, Semper Reformanda Radio to interact. One-on-one, uh, -on -one. Um, they declined that, and then recently, uh, Eric Peterson from the Bearded Bereans, he reached out to us and uh, you know said, uh, "Come on, let's have a, a conversation with a, a neutral party," and uh, they once again declined after all three of us uh, said that we would we would be willing to do it. Uh, so, I mean, you know, they they can laugh, they can they can make fun of us as much as they want, but. At the end of the day, um, I think that we've acted with integrity the entire time. Uh, they they complained about Owen's tone, so uh, Owen just try to not be so grumpy. I guess I don't know, um, but yeah, people were asking for us to interact with them directly, and uh, we we thought that that's what they wanted. We thought that uh, they would be willing to do a joint podcast or do something together. And, uh, I mean, we could have just saved a lot, a lot of time. So from here on out, I really think that we are um, – I, I, I really think that I just uh, – I, I kind of want to just move on. Uh, I, I do not want to have to go through this again, um, you, you know, correcting the stuff. I mean, one of the things that Paul said was uh, that I, I was asking questions and that he told me, uh, you know, to go study for myself and that I got upset. I never got upset with him. I just, I, you know, I didn't understand why he would say that when conversations from the porch pot, uh, Facebook page is, is meant to ask questions. And then they totally disregarded. And, and it's funny because in our very first episode, in the very first 10 minutes, I even said, you know, I spent a lot of my time uh, this week asking questions. And the reason that I, I was asking questions to them was because we had anticipated that we would interact with them directly. 
and um, and uh, we wanted to represent them accurately. We wanted to represent them uh, correctly. And and Chris kept telling us that you know you can't paint us with a broad brush. There's a lot of nuances. Uh, we even saw that uh, in in Carlos's discussion with uh, Lewis, where Carlos asked Lewis, you know, if he agreed with conversations from the porch, then. And in the middle of a discussion, he finds out that, oh, they, they actually don't agree. Uh, you know, it's like, do you guys hold to a form of the Adamic Covenant? Uh, some NCT proponents do, some NCT proponents don't. And so we were asking questions uh, because we wanted to represent, we, we wanted to engage with them and uh, and, and talk about them, uh, talk about what they, what they believed. And that's why I said that we were going to, uh, treat them as a primary source for NCT. And so it's not that we weren't studying other things, that we weren't reading other other things, um, other books. And uh, it, it was just unbelievably uncharitable, a complete misrepresentation. Uh, they, I'm just going to say this, they have made a huge mess of all of this. And now we have egg on our face. They have egg on our face. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I really don't want to uh, go back and forth with them unless it's in, in direct uh, communication. So that way we don't uh, we don't keep having these issues. So that's my piece. I, I think um, I'm done with that. Yeah, and I want to try to be, you know, I want to I guess try to be charitable because I don't. It seems like a lot of the, a lot of the time they weren't even aware of just how confusing and maybe even like even misleading that they the the impressions that they were giving us and so um, with I kind of understand why they don't w want to because it's kind of like all of this pressure has been put on well I don't know if it's all like everybody's like looking at them like why don't you want to do it why don't you want to do it and so I kind of understand like a lot of a lot has happened things have gotten really sour at certain points and um i really hope that we can move past that um it, but you know so i can kind of understand why now, honestly i don't think it's a good idea to do anything it's probably not a good idea to do anything like right now anything too soon um i wouldn't be against it if somebody wanted to in fact um just to give a little uh foreshadowing we are i'm actually going to hopefully be uh, uh i'm going to invite uh, brother Lewis Lyons again to have another discussion with me so we can talk a little bit more about um, you know the, the the things that we talked about the first time and um, so things are starting to get better in in a different way I guess it's, things are getting reoriented and redirected and actually that everybody's a lot of people are following that discussion between me and Lewis um, in the porch so you know I, I hope that you know, may, hopefully things will just start to get better. I guess they're already starting to get better, and I hope to continue in that direction. Um, so, but anyway, continuing, continue. Uh, well, did you guys want to say something or? No. But okay, so uh, just kind of moving on now. Trying, I'm going to try to wrap it up. Just a few more, three or four more points. Uh, so, in episode, then in their mega response, episode 18, in about an hour 33 minutes. <clears throat> Uh, Brother Chris said that historically the moral law was equated with the Ten Commandments. And uh, Pastor Paul actually said something similar. He said the same thing in Episode 7, I think 10 minutes into Episode 7. 
And he, he actually, Pastor Paul said that they, he based this like misunderstanding on, on an accusation or a, a criticism of Reformed theology that this we change horses, you know, we change horses because we use different terms with respect to the moral law and the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments. And um, I guess it, the, they thought that the moral law is the Ten Commandments, but that's not what the Reformed teaching is. It's ne it never has been. Um, again, if you just read the catechisms, you would know that. Uh, uh, the Shorter Catechism, question 41, for example, says, Wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So th that's not the moral law. It, it's not the entire moral law. It's just a summary. And it, the, it's a very basic misunderstanding, and I think it kind of it basically fed into Paul's you know, criticism of changing horses and stuff like that but really that's why we say that the moral law is it predates and 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 uh still remains in effect after the ten commandments because the ten commandments is just a summary of it um it, it's not the full thing so um and then again in question 42 what is the sum of the ten commandments um the sum of the ten commandments is to love the lord our god with all our heart with all our soul with all our strength and with all our mind and our neighbor as ourselves so that that again this is the same reform this is what the reform teaching has been that the the two are a summary of the ten and this ten is a summary of the whole uh you know so on and so forth <clears throat> and then um so the uh i guess the next point that i wanted to bring up a little bit uh i wanted to kind of offer this up to them because there seems to be another very systemic a systematic misunderstanding of the reform view of sanctification and they didn't, I don't think they actually brought this up in their response but uh, I guess I thought this might be a good place to, 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 to bring it up because the reform you know a lot of them have the misunderstanding that David Gay included and and they also seem to have this misunderstanding that we're sanctified by by the law or by law keeping and that's actually not the reform teaching at all uh, the reform teaching is that we, you know, and then they'll start going to, this is part of the, the, where I see them getting so caught up with the trees that they fail to back up and see the forest. You know, like, for example, when they say that Paul, that the apostles never used the, the Old Testament or, or the, or the, uh, the, the, not the Old Testament necessarily, but the, the Ten Commandments uh, to uh, preach to Gentiles. It's like, well, the three gospels were written for Gentiles and the three gospels, the three synoptic gospels all have, I mean, I'm sorry, not the synoptic ones, the, uh, uh, Mark, Luke, and John all have references to the law there. So, I mean, he, this is a similar case in which if we back up and just see what Christ himself taught in John 17, 17, for example, he said to sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So what are we sanctified by? We are sanctified by God's truth. What is God's truth? Thy word. His word is truth. So in other words, what is the reform teaching of sanctification? The Reformed teaching is that we are primarily sanct. The primary means of our sanctification is the Bible. It's the Word of God. Therefore, we are sanctified by everything in the Bible. And so everything in the Bible includes both law and gospel. That is why we are sanctified by the law and by the gospel. It's not that we're sanctified by keeping the law because we, uh, our law keeping is a uh, fruit of uh, our obedience to God, in other words, is a fruit of that sanctification. It's not the sanctification itself. 
And so just wanted to point that out again because that's a huge misunderstanding that a lot of New Covenant theology authors seem to have. And then a point about the Covenant of Works, I know that I think it was Joseph. I can't remember if it was Joseph or Antonio. I get those confused, but I think it was Joseph. He addressed some of the things about the Covenant of Works. And I wanted to clarify again that the Covenant of Works in the Reformed teaching is actually still in effect. It's still in effect for everybody who is in Adam. So everybody's guilty of breaking the covenant of works, and the covenant of works was never was never revoked or or removed or fulfilled unless you're in Christ. So everybody who is in Adam is still guilty of breaking that covenant of works. And that's why, you know, when they were breaking the the the, the God's explicit command not to eat of the fruit, Tim, you brought out some really good points last time about how they failed to love each other and they failed to love God. But yeah, even after that, like everybody's still perpetually uh, is born breaking that covenant and continues to break and violate that covenant of works, and that's why Christ had to fulfill that that covenant for us and redeem us from the from the from that covenant, so we could be in Christ. And so, and then you know the comments that were made about the snake and the 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 like, you know, Paul had Pastor Paul had made some comments about us discrediting ourselves. Like, why are we talking about a snake? It's like, well, again, how is this irrelevant to the discussion? Why on earth is there a snake there set up to tempt uh, Adam and Eve if it's supposed to be paradise? It's not, and, and they even said, well, I think Joseph said, uh, I think the snake was there to, to accomplish God's purposes or something like that. Well, yeah, obviously, but how did that happen? The snake had to confront Adam and test him. I mean, it's not that, it's not that hard, you know. And by the way, those were comments that we made in passing. They were not fully fledged arguments for for defending the covenant of works, and they were... I mean, they're they're making it seem like they're they're refuting reformed theology so uh, masterfully and and fully. And it's like no, these these were comments we made in passing, and we we probably will dedicate an entire show on the covenant of works just to show a lot of the scriptural support that that is for it and stuff. But you know, that's another thing. Like this is another problem that uh, is is was very prevalent in the the response, and specifically also when Joseph was referring to. Uh, the confessions because they he he talked about the the covenant of works in the confessions and he mentioned some all of the scripture references in those confessions it's like first of all the the proof text the 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 authors of the confession didn't even want to put the proof text in there in the first place because they didn't want them to be uh because that's what they believe the entire bible uh taught not just certain little proof texts but they included i think they eventually they included them on there to to just be used as study guides or study aids to help people uh, just look, do some further research into it. It doesn't mean that that's the only place where it's taught in those scripture references. Some of those scripture references actually vary depending on what version of the confession you have. So that that like they basically said, you know, that oh well, we just refuted the like th this is a big problem with their failure to interact properly with the reformed uh, position and tradition. Like those confessions. Are, bait, are just simply con their conclusions of the arguments that they had in order to, to, to draw up those summaries and those conclusions. They are not the arguments themselves. They never really address the arguments. This is what's been so disappointing because they don't even know how to interact with Reformed theology properly. It's like, it's the conclusion of an argument and the arguments were, you, they never covered the arguments. In fact, it was funny because Joseph had uh, uh, Burkhoff's systematic theology in hand 
but he, and he only covered a few points to to talk about infant baptism. But it's like it's like I'm not going to talk about all of it because there's a lot of points. Well, yeah, that's what you should have probably addressed. You should have talked about the systematic theology, the arguments in the systematic theology, because that is where the 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 positions are set forth and, and argued for and defended. They're not they're not actually defended or argument argued for in the confession because they're conclusions. And so um, again, just to point that out to them and. Uh, just two more things real quick another thing we want to submit to these guys you know they talk I know originally they had said that they were going to talk about covenant theology specifically from a Presbyterian perspective because that was a majority view or something like that but honestly Presbyterian Presbyterians don't really care they don't really seem to care about this new covenant theology stuff so my encouragement to them would be to focus their attention a lot more actually primarily on Reformed Baptists because the Reformed Baptists are the ones taking them to task, really taking them to task. It's not just because there's a podcast where we're all Reformed Baptists and we just happen to be in the same network. Obviously, we're here, and we've been critiquing them and offering them uh, 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 criticisms, but also Reformed Baptists have by and large been the ones leading the, 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 the forefront in addressing New Covenant theology and offering criticisms and uh, arguments against their views. So, again... Just wanted to point that out. And finally, uh, just to kind of uh, offer a little bit of uh, a, a foretaste of, of what we're going to cover next, specifically with respect to scripturalism and, and Clark and, you know, Van Tilling, those things. Uh, Paul made a, Pastor Paul made an interesting comment about, uh, I guess he said he was going to do a little uh, refutation of scripturalism and, and by coming up with a scenario on how a blind, deaf, and dumb man or person can learn anything if he can't read the Bible or something like that he said um, and I'm not sure what he was leading by that I think he, what he was saying sounds like he was saying that we need our senses in order to read the Bible in order to learn uh, but it's funny because they accuse us of as covenant theologians or as people who hold to the tripart distinction of the law that we get that from Aquinas which is not true it's much older than Aquinas and we've shown that already too if you look at our previous episode but it actually sounds like uh, he actually sounds like Thomas Aquinas. He sounds like an empiricist because uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, we don't, it's not our senses that where we learn the Bible or where we learn anything, where we learn truth, whereby we learn truth. Um, the Bible actually teaches that it is in Christ in which, in whom are all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden, Colossians 2 3. It's all hidden in Christ. And therefore, that's why John 1 9 says the true light would in the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world so in other words the only way we know anything both believers and unbelievers is because Christ is the light and the logic of God that enlightens everyone so every truth even the truth that men that men outside of Christ know they know it by the grace of God and by the fact that Christ has enlightened them to understand certain truths and uh, another verse uh, to point to is Acts 17 and 28 where it says in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring so everything that we get from we get from God including our knowledge so Pastor Paul uh, if you will gladly take you to task on that um, because it sounds like you're you sound like Aquinas frankly uh, in talking about the senses and things like that and so we'd be uh, we're definitely gonna address some of that in our future episodes and uh, so yeah you, you guys want to say anything about that or or anything
Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know if uh, Owen has really studied up on scripturalism. Uh, you and I have, and we'll gladly take him to task on it. Um, but uh, frankly, uh, it doesn't sound like he knows what he's talking about. So, um, but let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Yeah. I think so this became. Uh, I think this became the Carlos show. Yeah. Um, I think. Well, what I want to close with. And speaking, I guess I'll just speak for myself. I'll keep an open door policy for them. Uh, we we're we're sorry that things got so badly out of hand. We apologize to our listeners that things turned out the way that they did. We're very disappointed. We think this could have been addressed very easily if they, you know, if the porch had simply told us that they didn't want to engage instead of just giving so many mixed impressions. And you know, but I guess they've apologized to me. On different occasions, uh, uh, Brother Chris and Pastor Paul have, and uh, you know, hopefully, here's what I'll say. You know, maybe sometime in the near future, in the future, maybe not so immediately right now, but I think it would be uh, neat if we had a discussion on. Let's just go. Okay, you know, they, I think let's just go to the Bible. You know, let's have a discussion on on a verse of the Bible, something like First Corinthians nine twenty one. You know, that's a big New Covenant theology verse. Let's let's have a discussion on that. I'd be glad to do that, something like that with him. You know, I don't know if maybe right now might not be such a good idea just because of so much of that that is so much uh, unfortunate circumstances that keep you know that have been happening. But uh, that will I'll just throw that offer out there, and um, I really hope things can get better from here on out. So okay, so we're gonna go ahead and play this last episode, uh, this last part of uh, Lewis and, and Carlos. And uh, we'll be back next week with something completely different. So I hope you all have a, a blessed week, and uh, we'll check you next time. Bye. And I'm, I'm curious. I did want to ask this question because I know I've heard a lot of I've heard New Covenant theology guys say things like you can't divorce uh, the law from the covenant, uh, it's, it's things like that, right? And so, um, so. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean that um, so it, does that mean that you have to be under a covenant in order to be if you're under a law? Does that mean that you have to be under a covenant? Because you you would you would agree that everybody's under some form of law, right? Covenant by definition is law. You can't have a covenant without a law. Would you agree with that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So covenant by definition is a law. And to give a human example. It, it, when you enter into a mortgage to buy a house, you enter into that mortgage, you agree on the, the purchase price, you agree on the interest rate, whether it's a floating interest rate or a fixed interest rate, you agree on a bajillion thing, or every, anything you could possibly agree on, you agree on it. Once you sign that covenant, it's established, it's done, it's firm, right? You've entered into that agreement. Now there are stipulations upon you and there are stipulations upon the lender. And both of you have to fulfill your obligations because that covenant has been cut. So both of you are held under different law, if you will, different obligations that you have to keep. And there's usually penalties if you don't keep the law. If you decide the next day that, you know, I don't like the interest rate that I got. It went down yesterday, and I want the lower one now. You, you can't go to your bank and say, hey, the interest rate's lower now, so I want I want to change the mortgage that we that we signed 
and I want to change the, to, to the lower rate, they're going to say, sorry, dude, you signed. It's it. It's firm. You can't change it. And when, when God entered into the covenant with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, it, it was firm. Moses took that blood and he sprinkled it upon all the people, confirming this is ratified by blood. This covenant is firm. You are under a law of the covenant to keep the stipulations and the requirements thereof. And so when, when that covenant was abolished, as both New Covenant and Reformed Baptists would agree, that covenant is abolished. And then that's what Barcellus was getting at, is that all of it, all of it is abolished. The, the, the moral, the civil, the ceremonial, it, the whole covenant's abolished. If I uh, pay off the house, right, I fulfill the demands of the covenant or the contract, I pay off the house, it's mine, and then I go and I enter into a new mortgage, and I buy a, a new house, when I enter into the, 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 that new mortgage, I don't go back to the old mortgage, rip out page 9 from the old mortgage, and staple it to the new mortgage, because that was, that was part of the old covenant. So you don't transfer stipulations from one covenant and assume that just because uh, they're moral for whatever reason that you have to take those stipulations and attach them to the new covenant, the new agreement. You look at the new agreement for what it is, and you take it for the terms that, that are set out in that covenant, and you don't staple on any extra pages, or, or in this case, the Decalogue. Uh, uh, yeah, so, but you would, so you would agree, though, that there are certain aspects of the law that are transcovenantal, right? There is, there it, is. You know, it was a, it's, it's still a sin to lie, and it's always been a sin to lie, right? For example. Sure. Yeah. Sure. There so, are things, yeah. Yeah, okay. So now, my question is, so you, you would, would you agree with the statement that you cannot have a law without a covenant? You can't have a law without a covenant. Yeah. That's a that's a good question. I've never considered the reverse, perhaps. I know you can't have a covenant without a law. Can you have a law without a covenant? I would say, yes, you can. Because God did put demands upon even Cain and Abel to bring a sacrifice. Um, there were demands uh, placed on people up into... Uh, uh, God, God punished the, the people through the flood of Noah. So, so there were demands on people. Um, there, so there was, well, I guess there wasn't a law, even in that case. That you, but you would call that, go ahead. Yeah, you would, you would call that the law of conscience, right? Or the law of uh, absolute law? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So what, and the, so what covenant is tied to that law? There is no covenant. Tied to that law. So, so, okay, so how could it not be, so how was the law in effect then, if there wasn't a covenant attached to it? How was it put into effect? I don't think, I don't think that the law was put into effect. Um, God, 
God did hold well, them. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so the you know Romans it says where there is no sin, where there is no law, right? Right. right. So at some point, like there has like where you know where was that law uh, introduced, or you know wh when did that come into you know when was the absolute law binding? Is the the absolute law has always been binding on man because man's created in God's image, and being God's creation, uh, made in His image, there is a moral obligation for man to worship God, to serve God, and to please God. And God has placed within every man a conscience, um, as we're all probably familiar. If anybody has uh, paid attention to any of the way the master stuff, conscience, of course, is conscience or conciencia which is uh, with knowledge. So every, every man has a conscience to know, one, that there is a God. Paul says that even the works of creation testify, and, and every man is without excuse because they know God, and they know God's attributes. And they know they ought to worship God, and they know that they're sinners before God. Yeah, so I see that as a... So I see that as an inconsistency in saying that you know, the absolute law is binding, but there wasn't a covenant attached to it. And so obviously the Reformed, the Reformed Baptist answer to that, or the Reformed answer to that, would be that that law was, uh, of, in, uh, I guess, instituted in the covenant of works. And so that was the covenant stipulation that was tied to that uh, law. And so therefore, um, you know, you gave the illustration of a mortgage and not putting the old mortgage to the new one and things like that. But so... The, the, I guess what we would see is that when you talk about the, the covenant that was broken, that covenant is still in effect. The covenant of works is still in effect because, you know, as the Bible says, in Adam we all die. In, in Christ we're made alive. And if you're not in Christ, you're in Adam. You are still tied to those covenant stipulations that were broken in Adam and that you continue to break to this day uh, because of your personal sins. And so I think... Um, I would see that as um, as an inconsistency, especially because you guys are so. Um, you you even you you yourself said that a covenant or what did you say that a uh, covenant is law or something like that. You have such a close a view. Covenant, there has to be a law with a covenant. You can't have covenant without law. Yeah. Right. So and that, I mean we agree completely on that. I mean that's but that's exactly why I think that would be uh, I, what I see as an inconsistency with respect to the the absolute law. That unbelievers are are going to be condemned under when they are judged by by God, because there there has to be a covenant attached to that in order for them to you know in order for that law to to have been in effect and you know so on and so forth. But I I think it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that, uh, because if you're if you're going to assume that. That morality was that that de the demands of the law were given to Adam from the very beginning. Then I think you have to deal with what I think is a very troublesome idea, namely, uh, where do you, where would you classify uh, incest? Was was that a moral obligation given to Adam? Was that a ceremonial law? Is that a civil law? Where does incest come in? Yeah, um, those are one of those. I guess I guess that would be one of those special cases where um, there's some. I've heard some different interpretations about 
regarding the incest or, you know, because uh, Adam and Eve had, had kids after that, and so who did they marry? Um, so I think I've heard some commentators say that uh, God actually populated the earth uh, somehow uh, after Adam and Eve, but that wouldn't really make sense because Adam and Eve are first parents, so is everybody first parents. Um, but in terms of things like that, uh, it, you know, incest, incest is a little bit, I think that's kind of a, a sort of a special case um, with respect to the moral, and so with respect to the moral law, you have other, the reason the Reformed teaching is that the Ten Commandments are a summary is because um, bestiality, for example, is also part of the moral law. Uh, it's always a sin to, to have sex with animals or, you know, anything that's not your wife or your husband. And so, um, and then there, that, ties in, that ties into the seventh commandment, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Yes, essentially. And uh, so, I, I think that's one of those that that might be one of those uh, that that doesn't usually. In other words, that's not really that. That's an exception. Like that doesn't. That's sort of a special case. And you have another issue with respect to like marriage and polygamy. Um, but I would actually say that because of what Christ said in, in Matthew, that from the beginning God made the male and female, um, that the the clear teaching there is is that there should that, that the I guess the ideal or the ideal of marriage is between one man and one woman, and so um, but those I think were more like special cases that that are you know that some people say like well okay the reason that they obviously had you know, quote unquote, incest or whatever that their that their daughters or, uh, you know, that the the children of Adam and Eve married each other, um, is because that's all they had. And um, so, and there's also the case where I think that would probably be one of those cases where um, incest wasn't fully wasn't actually um, instituted as a law until I guess the Mosaic Covenant or whenever it came into effect, or you know maybe before that I don't remember, but. Um, yeah, that might be one of those cases. So, so being that it's instituted later, uh, then it would have to fall into the category of uh, civil or ceremonial. Uh, not necessarily, and, and a lot of this, uh, I, I think, a lot of this is also because it's tied to, um, because it's tied to genetics, and um, the the Bible deals a lot with genetics. Obviously, you know. Uh, the Jews and Christ being the Jew and the seed and, and all that stuff. So I think that's really, that's kind of a tricky one. I haven't really given that too much thought and I'm not really sure what, like, you know, what if there's like an official reform view of that or reform Baptist view or whatever. Um, but yeah, obviously it's still a sin to, to commit incest, uh, especially because, you know, from, from what the law of Moses say, uh, the law of, I'm sorry, the law of Moses, uh, says and the fact that that's still you know and that's actually a good point because in the New Testament there is no at least from what I from what I've seen there is no explicit command against incest or against marrying your 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 uh, you know your wife or I mean I'm sorry your sister or your sibling and so I think that's one of those cases where it's helpful to look back to the Old Testament uh, to recognize that hey you know there's a reason why God um, put that law into place and so that's important to think about the fact as to why those laws were put into place and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So it sounds like you you 
kind of have established a, a quadruple division of the law. That there's civil, ceremonial, moral, and then special special laws. No, well, uh, it's it's sort of it's a moral law. I mean, it's a more it's a sin. Like if a Gentile or if an unbeliever, if anybody marries their sibling now, it's a sin. And so it's it's part of the moral law. I guess it just didn't come fully. That one didn't come fully into effect until uh, you know until whenever God first uh, placed that command explicitly. So. I, again, I think that's a very kind of a special case, um, and so I mean, because I would I would ask you the same question, like how would you, in the New Testament, there's obviously no, you know, there's no explicit command against uh, marrying your 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 sister, right? So where, how would you justify not marrying a sibling, or that being a sin? Right, uh, I I think that's one of the strengths of New Covenant theology, is that. Um, the way that New Covenant theologians view the Law of Moses in the Old Testament in particular uh, being a didactic resource, uh, when you look at the, the New Testament specifically, you look at uh, the Gospels, the, the Epistles, you have uh, command after command to avoid porneia, which is easily translated... Uh, sexual immorality, of course, it's where we get the word pornography from, uh, any sort of sexual immorality, avoid porneia, avoid porneia again and again, we have it. And the question then becomes, well, what's porneia? What is sexual immorality? You can't just say avoid sexual morality and not tell me what it is. And I think when you look back to the the Old Testament as a, as a, te a source of information and teaching and understanding, then we see that that was one of the things that God included in his list of sexual immorality, which, although it's not moral, binding on all men in all times, in all ages, God listed it in a list of sexual immorality, which he now tells us to avoid. From the, from the Reformed or the Covenant perspective, they... they are pretty much unable to list it as a moral command because by definition moral command is binding on all people in all ages and stemming from the very character and nature of God himself so that when God created the world Adam and Eve's children had in fact were commanded to multiply and fill the earth to actually commit acts of incest and at that time it wasn't binding on them. It wasn't a moral issue for them. And so I think uh, if, a, if the, the covenant theologian is going to be consistent in their view and say, well, if, it, if it's not binding on all men in all time, then it has to be classified as either civil or ceremonial. And it, it sounds like you're, you've developed a fourth uh, classification of special cases which I, I totally understand that, but I think that becomes necessary because you're not a New Covenant theologian. <laughs> well, well, I, I think, I think, I think, uh, uh, I think this might be an anomaly in New Covenant theology too. It's not just the fact that um, because it's such a special case and that the moral law, uh, and the fact that the moral law, or I guess it came later on into effect as a moral law, uh, I think New Covenant theology still has the same problem because 
if you consider, for example, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding with respect to, for example, evangelism, uh, when a New Covenant Theology guy evangelizes a sinner, and you would say, or you wouldn't be trying to say, you're guilty of breaking the commandment. Right? You were kind of breaking up there. Can you say that again? Okay, so you would say, you, would you agree with, with saying that? Hey, hey, Carlos, maybe try turning down your bandwidth a little bit. Okay. Let me, you know how to do that on the hangout? Yeah, let me see. We're also getting a little bit of echo. I don't know if that's from you or Lois. Is that better? Sounds like that. the echo is from Lois. So, yeah, that's, that's better. Okay. So... My question is, if do you think it's wrong to quote or to 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 basically bind a sinner to you know the the mosaic the Ten Commandments? So would you uh, would you not be uh, I guess would you think that it's wrong or not biblical to say to accuse sinners of breaking you know the fifth commandment or one of the Ten Commandments? Personally, I, I don't have a problem with using the commandments in evangelism. I know most uh, New Covenant guys uh, probably do. Uh, I don't think so because I am going to agree with uh, what you mentioned earlier, the act of obedience of Christ, that Christ okay. came and fulfilled the law on our behalf, securing the blessings of that covenant for himself. As Paul says, all promises are yes and amen in Christ. All the promises made through to Abraham and through that Mosaic covenant belong to Christ. The curses of that covenant also belong to Christ. For cursed is every man who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to keep them, and cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So Christ is the recipient of all the blessings and promises, Christ is also the recipient of the curses, which is why he had to hang on the tree. So Christ fulfilled that covenant on our behalf so that we would be considered righteous because he is righteous. Paul says in Romans 8 that, that God did what the law could not do because of our weak flesh in that he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, so Christ is all. Christ is, is everything. And so I don't know why I started telling you this. What was your original question? Yeah, uh, my question was whether you would think it's wrong to, to accuse sinners of right. breaking any one of the Ten Commandments. Right. So, so I would say, listen, the, the Mosaic Law promised life. Again, in Romans, Paul says, Moses writes of the righteousness that comes through the law. That, listen, God sincerely promised life. You keep this and you live. You, can, you remember the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. He said, well, what commandments? And Jesus lists a few. He says, you keep these and you will inherit eternal life. And so a lot of New Covenant guys would disagree with that position, but then it's not, it's not a mono, that aspect of of theology is not necessarily uh, a monolithic area of New Covenant theology. 
Um, it's where a lot of guys disagree. So I'm going to say, listen, the law promised life. You want life? Keep the law. But you, so that's, can't, that's, you yeah. can't keep the law, can you? Right, right. So you need Christ, who kept the law on your behalf. Yeah, that that's very interesting. I was not aware of that, or that you that you held to that. But uh, hold on, Louis. I'm just gonna ask if you can mute yourself. There, we're getting a lot of echo from you. Okay, I'm sorry. No, uh, not problem. Okay, is that better? Much. Okay. All right. So the reason I asked that question was because, uh, from, from my understanding, and I took a lot of heat for saying on one of our episodes that, um, you know, New Covenant Theology guys don't believe that you should preach the law to Gentiles, and that's what I meant. What I meant was that you, you know, that they, a lot of them seem to uh, believe that you shouldn't preach the, that you shouldn't bind the uh, sinner, a, a Gentile especially, uh, to the Ten Commandments because that was a codified law for the Israelites and only the Israelites and so that, that's why I brought that issue up because with respect to incest there is no clear indication in the New Testament that incest is wrong uh, as far as I know and so you would have to go back uh, to Moses and it's you know there's one sense in which I think this is an inconsistency in New Covenant theology because they would say well the Old Testament law is still useful for you know I guess in an indirect way for wisdom and instruction I guess they, they, they say things like that and you know I, I would want to add, I would want to know what specifically they mean by that because in order for incest to be a sin it has to be clearly you know somewhere and it's not that clear in the New Testament so pointing back to the Old Testament would seem like a, a, a contradiction or an inconsistency for a New Covenant theologian to go to the Old Testament and say hey it's a sin uh, because in the Old Testament it was in you know incest was condemned and so, and the other, now, this actually opens another interesting uh, issue with respect to uh, what you said about believing in active obedience, because if you believe in the active obedience of Christ, then what exactly, so does that mean that you believe that Christ, that Christ's active obedience of fulfilling the entire Mosaic law was applied to both Jews and Gentiles? Uh, that that was a question. Who believes? Yeah, sorry about that. He forgot to unmute himself. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. You can hear me? Yeah. Uh, Christ's active obedience is applied to everyone who believes. Right, but what law did he fulfill? He fulfilled the Mosaic law. Right, the Mosaic law. So therefore, his active obedience that's imputed to all who believe would be the the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, right? Exactly. That's why he said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And that goes okay. to the example that I gave of the mortgage. And, and once you fulfill the mortgage, once you keep it, once you pay it off and meet its demands and receive the rewards and even the curses in his case, it's gone. Right. So, But now it sounds like you're putting Gentiles under the Mosaic Law. Because why would... Well, my, the, my reasoning is, why would Christ impute the active obedience of the Mosaic Law if the Gentiles are not supposed to be under that law and therefore not guilty of breaking the Mosaic law. Well, they were not under the law. And, and you have to understand that when Paul says in Ephesians that, listen, you as Gentiles were once without God in the world, without hope, cut off from the promises, cut off from grace, cut off from God, cut off from forgiveness. That what he's saying is 
you're not under the law. You have nothing to do with God. God has nothing to do with you. But that's the glory of the new covenant, is that God has ripped the veil from the temple and has, has entered into a new covenant through the mediator of Christ with everyone who would come to him. And so the reward that Christ received by working, as, as one pastor of mine used to say, listen, I'm saved by works. You're saved by works. We're all saved by works. Christ works. Christ is the one who worked. Christ is the one who completed his mission. Christ is the one who said, it is finished. He's the one who did the work, and we're the recipients of grace. We're the recipients of promise, the children of promise. And so when you consider Adam's act, or not Adam, sorry, Jesus' act of obedience, Christ kept the Mosaic law, but the Gentiles had no hope in the world before Christ. They weren't under the law. But the question is, if a Gentile before Christ wanted to know God, wanted to be known by God, what would they have to do? Yeah, I think, I think this, is a, this would be a major problem. Um, and I think this is why New Covenant, uh, you know, I guess a lot of New Covenant, I don't know if it's the majority that would reject the active obedience of Christ, but I think this is a major problem with, with holding to that and then at the same time saying that Gentiles are not under the law of Moses because why would the fulfillment of the entire Mosaic law have to be applied to Gentiles if they weren't, if they weren't guilty of breaking it? And so in the reform view, you have the active obedience being the fulfillment of the moral law. And so, because the moral law was fulfilled, that was broken under the covenant of works, that is the, the, uh, the restitution that Christ makes on our behalf by satisfying the covenant of works and applying that righteousness, that act of obedience of fulfilling the moral law perfectly to our account and reckoning us, therefore, not just blameless but also perfectly righteous. And so, I think that's a major problem uh, under NCT in saying, like, well, Gentiles are not under the Mosaic law, so if they're not under the Mosaic law, then why would, if they're, and therefore they wouldn't be able to be guilty of breaking it, why then would Christ impute the Mosaic law, the fulfillment of the entire Mosaic law, ceremonial and all, uh, to Gentiles if they were not even under that law in the first place? You get, you get my point? Oh, I think you're on mute. See here? There we go. Is that better? Yeah. Salvation was promised through the law. Right? Uh, what, what do you mean? Okay. When, when God entered into covenant with Israel, he, he only entered into covenant with Israel. The blood was only sprinkled on Israelites. That covenant only pertained to Israel, not to anyone else. Paul is very clear about that in Romans 2 when he says the Gentiles who are without law. If, if the Mosaic Law applied to everyone else, then everyone else would be guilty of breaking the Mosaic Law. If you read the book of Amos, when you read the judgments against the Gentile nations, it's for breaking the law of conscience is what you see again and again. But when he gets to Israel, he says, the judgment's coming against you for not keeping the law of Moses. That's why I'm bringing judgment against you. But he doesn't bring judgment against the nations for not keeping the law of Moses. They were never under the law of Moses. But God promised salvation by grace. And the way that grace is to come, someone had to earn it first. 
And so God, in, God created the Mosaic Covenant, promised life for the keeper, the one who could keep it. Life is yours. Christ comes, is born under the law, keeps the law, fulfills the law, so that the he, he buys the house, essentially. He pays off the house. It's his house. Now a Jew can come to him and say, hey, can I have that house? Yeah, sure, I'll give it to you too. I'll, I'll give you the house. It's mine to give. A Gentile can come to Christ and say, hey, can I have the house? He can say, yeah, I'll give it to you. I earned it. It's mine. And so salvation isn't like a house in that it's an object that it can only be given to one person. But salvation, Christ earned salvation. He became the Savior of all mankind, which is what he did in keeping the law, in, in taking the benefits and the blessings of having kept it, and in suffering the curses for those who haven't kept it. And so what Christ does is he earns the blessing of life. And then he turns around and he says, hey, who wants life? Come to me and take water without price. And he looks to Jew and he looks to Gentile and he looks to everyone and says, life is in me. I am the life. I'm not going to point you to life. I'm not telling you how to get to life. I'm life. I'm the source of life. Come to me. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's interesting. interesting. I think, I think um, um, the fact that you would, so you would agree that Gentiles are not under the Mosaic Law. And so why then is it, see, because then the issue is, so if they're not under the Mosaic Law, then why, why don't you hold to the view that um, Christ imputed his active obedience of satisfying the law of conscience to Gentiles, but the mosaic, the you know, the active obedience of the full mosaic law on Jews. Because God never promised life to anyone who could keep the law of conscience. That blessing, remember, a covenant is you do this and you receive that, right? That's a covenant. Do A, you receive B. The law of conscience was never a covenant. It was never, there was no promised reward for keeping that. But God instituted the Mosaic Covenant so that he could promise reward for the keeper, so that Christ could come and keep it, so that salvation wouldn't be by works, but by faith in Christ, the keeper. Right, so righteousness is, the reason that righteousness is imputed or the reason we need salvation is we is because we've broken God's laws, right? We we sinned, right? We yeah, like like you mentioned, in Adam we're all guilty. We all we all need life, and how was life promised? It was promised by obedience to the law of Moses. Right. So why then does the, so why why then do Jen have to have the entire law of Moses? apply to them if they weren't guilty of breaking or because they weren't under the entire Mosaic Law or at all. They weren't under the Mosaic Law at all, according to NCT, right? Right. They're not under the Mosaic Law. God had nothing to do with them. Right. So then why, so then why, right. So then why is the Mosaic Law, the full obedience of the Mosaic Law, applied to Gentiles? Let, let me let me give you a, a human example, okay? Let's say I, I come to you and I say, Carlos, uh, 
I know you like baseball. I know you've always wanted to, to play in the major leagues. So I, I work for uh, the Chicago Cubs, and I'm going to bring you on to our team. And we're going to sign a, a contract, okay? And the contract that we're going to sign is I'll pay you a million dollars a game. I will pay you that million dollars, and that's my end of the agreement. Your end of the agreement is every game you have to hit three home runs. If you fail to hit three home runs, then we're going to take you out into the street and shoot you. And that's the agreement. And you sign that agreement. You say, sure, why not? And so we, we bring you on. You step up to the plate, and first game ends, and you didn't hit any home runs. You're damned. You're condemned. You have no hope. You were under the law. You were in that agreement, right? Now, the guy standing on the street corner wasn't in that agreement. But Christ comes in, and Christ says, listen, Carlos, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bat for you. And Christ comes in, and he hits three home runs in every single game. Every time up to bat, he hits a home run. He keeps the terms of the agreement for you. So the reward, the million dollars per game, goes to Christ. And since Christ owns that million dollars every game, it belongs to him. So now he can look to you and he can say, Carlos, hey, come here. I'll give you the money. Guy on the street corner, come here. I can give it to you. You weren't part of the agreement. You weren't part of the covenant and contract that Carlos and the Cubs had. But I can give it to you if I want to. I can give it to whoever I want to because it's mine. And that's what Christ does with eternal life. It's mine. He earned it. All the blessings of, of, of the covenant belong to him. And so even though the Gentiles weren't under that law, he fulfilled the blessing that the law, obedience of the law gave for them so that he could look to them, look to everyone, and say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah, that's... that's I don't... Yeah, I think I don't think the analogy uh, would, would be... I guess fully applied to the. At, at one point, it sounded it sounded like you were describing my view actually, because you know the covenant of works. But um, it's kind of it, it seems a little odd to me to say that you know you weren't under that covenant, or or you weren't guilty of breaking that law, but yet the active uh, righteousness of fulfilling that law is applied to you. Um, I think that to me that, that that doesn't really seem to correlate with the way the Bible describes um, uh, the, the fact that God is uh, an exacting judge. He's a just judge, and so um, it, it's it's implying that how why would He impute active righteousness without the implication that you would be guilty of breaking it? And so I think that's the problem. I think that's that seems to be a problem to me with that view is that that actually implies that the reason that we had to have Christ's active obedience imputed to us is because we did not fulfill it ourselves and we broke the law not just by uh, commission, uh, omission but commission as well and so to me that that doesn't that that seems like a like a problem to say that you know we're we're receiving the the fulfillment of the law of Moses even though we didn't break it and even though uh, we weren't under it even though we weren't uh, bound by it in any way shape or form and yet we're you know he's imputing that righteousness to us um, that kind of that doesn't really you know because God in the Bible is described as a, as a just judge and as the fact that um every you know um, uh, in terms of like 
there's a there's a you know where where does it say that in Proverbs somewhere in Proverbs it says that you know to condemn the to to condemn the the wicked or the righteous um, and to uh, clear the the guilty is an abomination in the eyes of God and so to me that seems like well you're it, I don't see how that would apply in this case because that would that would seem to apply that they were guilty of breaking it in order for that righteousness to be applied uh, to uh, to that you know for the full mosaic law to be applied in that sense so I guess that's that's the at least that's the the problem that I'm seeing there and I think again that's why it seems to me that New Covenant theology guys don't hold to the active obedience of Christ for that very reason because that would that Im, that implies that they would have to be under the law of Moses in some way if that if if it were the case that Christ fulfilled that the act of obedience of Christ is the fact that he satisfied the entire Mosaic law. See, I, I, don't, I don't think so at all, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why you're having a hard time understanding that someone who is not part of a covenant agreement can receive the benefits of that covenant agreement. So, again, back to I understand. The, the example of a mortgage, you enter into a mortgage and you default on it. Someone comes in and saves you from your default and pays it off for you. And they give it to someone who wasn't. They give the house to it, to anybody, not you. They give it to someone else, and that's exactly what what Christ did, right? He took the vineyard away from the vineyard owners, and he gave it to someone else. Right. No, I understand it. I understand what you're saying. I just don't think. I just don't see it in the Bible, it, because in the sense that um, you have, it, in the sense of earning something on our behalf, it, it doesn't. There's a the, the the biblical reason for having for that being done in the first place is because we fell short, and that's what sin is, falling short of the glory of God. And so, for for and this I think this also ties into the issue of like, you know, was was God was God gracious to Adam in the Garden of of, of Eden prior to the fall because the Bible says God made man upright, and so why would God have to deal graciously with Adam? If if he wasn't guilty of anything before the fall, and so I think part of this might tie into that also into that as well, and how uh, I think it's you wouldn't it doesn't it's not you can't say that God is gracious in the same way to Adam because he blessed you know he blessed the the Garden of of Eden and um, he he you know he was gracious in the in the sense of like it was unmerited favor, but the the biblical the, I mean the the in terms of grace when the Bible is describing the concept of grace, it clearly implies that it was um, for forgiveness of sins. It's a forgiveness of something that you violated under uh, uh, the law of God, and so you, because you sinned. And so I think I don't think it sounds like you're taking that concept of, of like a sort of general concept of graciousness and and sort of applying it in this aspect of the you know the the fact that the full mosaic law was imputed as active obedience to uh, to to non-jews uh, and I don't think I don't think uh, the Bible uses that uh, concept of grace in that way because of the fact that again like because God is such an exacting judge and he holds us accountable for every thought word indeed his when it comes to dealing with righteousness and condemnation and wickedness God is very exacting and so um, I guess that to, to me that I I that would be a problem for for me seeing that you know the that that's a the, to me that's a very slippery 
I guess, concept of saying, you know, did Adam, did God give grace to Adam before the fall? Well, I don't think he did. Um, in, in a sort of, it would have to be qualified. It's not grace in the same sense that, you know, it, the Bible describes subsequently to the, you know, to that in, in the sense that grace is giving you unmerited favor for, you know, forgiving you for the, the, the wrong that you've committed. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's the problem that I'm seeing there. Well, you, you, you're saying that the Gentiles were under the law of Moses. No. No. What are you no. saying? They're under the moral law. Okay. So, the, the moral law you would define as, uh, as we, what we've seen tonight, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, summar summarizing the Ten Commandments, yeah. Okay. So, were the Gentiles under the Fourth Commandment? Yes. So, when, when the Gentiles were selling to the, the Jewish uh, people in Jerusalem, and uh, Nehemiah said, hey, get out of here, close the gates, uh, don't come back here again to, to, to break the Sabbath, for my people to break the Sabbath, why is why is Nehemiah only condemning the, the Israelites and not the Gentiles? What passage was that again? Uh, it's in Nehemiah. Give me a second. I think, well, I guess the the, the confessional answer to that would be that, um, yeah, the, the Gentiles are under the Sabbath because it's a creation ordinance and therefore uh, it was revealed in Adam to Adam and his posterity uh, in the garden and so um, I would I would at least say that you know the Gentiles are guilty of breaking the Sabbath in in principle by not trusting God uh, and by not trusting him in his promises and in his uh, in his providence okay this is uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 he says, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble, that you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? So you have Gentiles who are coming into Jerusalem, and they're, they're selling their merchandise in Jerusalem. Nehemiah says he admonishes those of Judah and that they're going to add to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So your point is that uh, the Gentiles were not guilty of breaking the Sabbath? That it... Right because they weren't under the Sabbath. 
See, it, and, and this is where I think you're having an inconsistency in that you're saying that, hey, it's okay to not outwardly observe a Sabbath, but back then, Gentiles, because it's a moral law, they had a moral obligation to observe the Sabbath. But now Gentiles don't have a moral obligation to observe the Sabbath, only in principle. So where are you saying that they were, uh, that the Gentiles were not condemned for this in this case? Here in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah yeah, well, condemns the Jews. Yeah. What, yeah. what verse? This is uh, chapter 13, verses 15 through 18. Okay, yeah, because I'm not seeing where uh, men of Tyre... Okay, so you're saying the men of Tyre living there? Mm -hmm. uh, sold them to the sons of Judah. Who, who does he? Who does he reprimand? Only the men of Judah. Who's who's going to bring wrath upon themselves? The people of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And and. and Again, it seems like you're. It seems like there's an inconsistency there in your thought, that you're saying that back then there was a moral obligation on Gentiles because they're under that law. There's a moral obligation for them to observe the Sabbath, but now there's not a moral obligation on them to observe the Sabbath. Just a just in principle. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to study this passage more carefully because I'm not sure how. Because my understanding is that if you were a foreigner and wanted to be in Israel, you had to be, you had to pretty much become a Jew. And so I'm not sure what the the text is. Um, I guess I'd have to study it more carefully because um, if if a if a Gentile wanted to become wanted to live in Israel, he had to become a Jew, um, right? So I mean, I'm not sure. Um. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'd have to think about that more uh, to study that. I would. Say it, the the re, the by what I mean by this, you know, breaking the Sabbath is not in the sense that um, that uh, in the ceremonial sense. Um, I would say that they're guilty of they're, they're they're basically guilty of breaking it because they don't trust God, um, and they don't you know they don't trust God for their salvation and for their and their sovereignty. So. Um, I guess it wouldn't. I don't think it would necessarily apply to uh, to my view, but um, yeah, I'd have to look at this more carefully. Because uh, my understanding is that yeah, if you if you were a Gentile and wanted to become, you you wanted to live in Israel, um, you had to become a, a Jew pretty much. So, well, not not necessarily to live in Israel, but uh, if you wanted to be counted among the people of God, you had to become a Jew. Right. Yeah, I guess. So you, you had to take circumcision, right? Mm-hmm. And if you take circumcision, then you're accountable to the whole law. Right. Right. So if a Gentile wanted to be counted among the people of God, wanted to come to God and worship God, the only way he could do it was by becoming a Jew. Right? Right which proves that he wasn't under the law. Who wasn't under the law? The Gentile. 
he had to well, come and put yeah. himself. He had to come and put himself under the law, if he wanted to come to God. He wasn't under the law. There was no demand on him to circumcise himself. There was no demand on him to submit himself to the law of Moses. There was no demand right. on him to do anything. The right. The, the the only the overlap between the Mosaic law and the you know the, the law that the Gentiles are under and the Reform view would be the moral law. Uh, the moral law, you know, being summarized in the Ten Commandments, and so uh, in terms of how the Sabbath would apply to that, uh, I, currently the way I see it right now, and I'm only speaking for myself because I'm not sure. I'm not sure how. I'm actually not too sure how the you know the Reform view or the Reform Baptist view uh, is with you know how the gent or how Gentiles in the Old Testament were held accountable to the sabbatical law to the law of the Sabbath and the fourth commandment, but um, I guess I guess it's only pertaining to the explicit command in the fourth commandment that you have to rest and uh, on on the on the sixth on the seventh day, and so I'm not, yeah I'm not sure I'm not sure what the Reformed Baptist answer is, but um, I would just say that uh, the moral law yeah the moral law is the overlap between Jews and Gentiles. It's not Gentiles are not under the entire Mosaic law. It would just be the aspect that overlaps, uh, which would be, uh, you know, the the two great commandments uh, and the you know the the ten the ten commandments, and but I would qualify the Sabbath uh, in the Old Testament with respect to Gentiles, how it applies to Gentiles. Okay, so it's interesting because even for an Israelite, um, if you look in the Book of Numbers, Israelites were to be cut off from Israel. If they didn't keep the Passover, and he, God says, "Every everyone who doesn't keep the Passover is to be cut off from his people. That man shall bear his sin." So if if Israelites are bearing sin for not keeping the Passover, Gentiles aren't bearing sin for keeping for not keeping the Passover. Are you, uh, you're so you're saying. So your point is that I guess would they be guilty of breaking the Passover? Yeah, if 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 Jews, if God says it's sin to not keep Passover, and Gentiles aren't keeping Passover, is it counted as sin for them? Yeah, I mean that's a it's an interesting question. I guess that that kind of bears into how what would happen to a gentile if he believed. Uh a believing gentile, I mean if if a gentile believed in the promises of the Messiah, then what would happen to him? Would he would he have to become a Jew? Um I haven't really studied that issue. I would have to look into that more because I'm also not sure what the reform view of that is, but um I guess I mean yeah, I'm not too sure. I guess um Believing in the promises of the Messiah, uh, would that imply that you would then have to join the nation of Israel? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I guess possibly. Uh, I'm. I'm not too sure about that. But but yeah, it's something that I have to look into further. So would you say that a Gentile who was before this is before the cross? He's he's keeping the the moral law. He is not making idols and worshiping them. 
he's not murdering and stealing and, and that sort of thing. He's faithful to his wife. He's keeping the moral law, although he's a sinner like everyone else. He hasn't kept it perfectly. Does God uh, have anything to do with that man? Yeah, right. I mean, it's obviously impossible for anybody to keep the law because we've, you know, everybody, uh, all like sheep have gone astray. And so, um, I guess, can God save a Gentile in the Old Testament uh, by revealing himself to him and not necessarily bring him under the nation of Israel? Um, that would be an interesting, that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that, but I think, and I, I guess maybe we can, I can conclude with this that one of the things that I've noticed in respect to how New Covenant theology interacts with Reformed theology is um, it kind of came up when you brought up the notion of the covenant of works and how the, I guess New Covenant theology guys don't see a test in the in the covenant of works and mm -hmm. but the reason that um, I guess the ways in which it's you can't really isolate doctrines uh, especially like the covenant of works from other doctrines in in that Reformed theology holds to. And so, obviously, because of God's predestination, the fall was already predestined. And there wasn't, it wasn't possible, in other words, it wasn't possible for Adam to, to, to fulfill that covenant. It's, it's impossible, in the, I mean, it's impossible in the sense that God predestined it that way in order to, to glorify His Son uh, on the cross and redeem the elect in, in the future. So, um, it's not, that wouldn't be possible um, because God predestined it that way. And so, the reason it's the test is because God obviously had to make a test or some form of some form of a trial so that Adam could actually break that covenant, and so that's why I guess we would I would just sort of um, point out that observation to be uh, mindful of the fact that every, all of this stuff is related, right? Because it's you know it's a system. Uh, Reformed theology is obviously a very well defined system, and so everything is related. All of the doctrines are related to each other, and so you can't. It's not really uh, you can't really interpret it or uh, criticize it in isolation to the other things that it's uh, bearing on. And so, yeah, but that was, that's basically, uh, I mean, a lot of good discussion. Um, this certainly raised a lot of issues that I need to look further into. Um, but, yeah. So with that, since we've been going a little bit, a little bit over two hours, it might be a good stopping point. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I want folks to see is, Unless I missed something, did you guys call each other heretics throughout this? Uh, I didn't think I heard that. Oh, I didn't. I'm, I didn't get that in. Hold on, heretic. <laughs> Carl, it's your turn to call him an unbeliever. Oh, he's a he's a perverter of God's law, definitely. <laughs> you too, Andrew. <laughs> you you see, we can we. I mean, two hours of good theological discussion. I hope that it was good for folks to witness that. We can discuss theology. You saw a lot of give and take, a lot of trying to understand one another's position, trying to get a feel for where each other, what they actually believe, not what you think they believe. <laughs> I hope you heard that tonight. I hope you heard that there was a lot of where they know they agree, they know they disagree, discussing that. Um, you know, I would, I would of course, I'm going to show my bias here a little, Carlos. I, I would challenge you not to turn to your system <laughs> to, to answer the Sabbath issue, but go to the Scriptures. <laughs> I know, I know. The, the system is based in the Scriptures. <laughs> That's right, your answer right, right now. <laughs> 
But but I would say, I mean, it, it is a well-developed system. I'm not, you know, I'm not denying that. And it's not that it's not based in in men's understanding of of scripture. Uh, but I do think, I, I I personally think that we have a tendency, you know, to do that, to go back to say, well, this is what, whether it be covenant theology, new covenant dispensational. A lot of people tend to go back to the system because someone smarter than them has figured it out. But men smarter than us has also gotten it wrong <laughs> at different times. And so I would say that what, we, what we'd want to do is, as I my encourage for all of us, is to have the same uh, charity that you've seen here displayed when discussing issues like this. Try to take the time to understand one another and know what someone's actually saying, not what you think they're saying, and respond to what they're actually saying. And all of us uh, in, in need to really be men of the word, not men of a system, not men of... And no matter how good that theological system is, uh, I think every one of us are wrong theologically somewhere. We just don't know where. If we did know where, we would change that. But we don't know where that is. But I also think that all of us will that know Christ will agree that the moment we sit at the feet of Christ, we will be so glad to be corrected because we're going to be corrected by the, the Lord. And so with that, we want to say goodnight. We do want to thank Carlos from, I'm going to try to say it again, super, my Latin's just not that good. Go on, you say it for us. Give us the podcast. Semper Reformanda Radio. Okay, yeah. Semper Reformandum Radio, and that can be found on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. So if you want to listen to more of that uh, podcast, you can go to just search iTunes for Bible Thumping Wingnut. Yes, it is a strange name. It's a catchy name, but it started because they were responding to atheists and took that name on for themselves. <laughs> Said, okay, you guys want to call us Bible Thumping Wingnuts? We'll take it. <laughs> Uh, and that's how they started. And so uh, they're part of it. Now, Lewis is not part of another Bible Thumping Wingnut podcast on that network, which is called The Conversations from the Porch. I think the real problem I have with that podcast is there is no porch. I want a video of those guys doing a podcast on an actual <laughs> porch. I mean, really. But uh, they are New Covenant theologians. So on the same network you have... These two views you heard tonight, so if you want to dig in more, those would be two places you can go. However, if you specifically want Lewis, you want to go to, as, as he had on his name tag underneath all, the whole time, but in case anyone rips this audio, to Emmaus Road Church, and it's Emmaus Road. Give me the URL again. Uh, it's www.emmausroadsugarland.org. Okay, Sugarland.org. So that you can get more about Lewis there. I want to thank both of you guys for taking the time. Such a good cordial discussion. Showing a lot of charity and love for one another as Christians should do. And I appreciate that. Uh, I'm, again, I don't know if I even mentioned that I'm Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity. And this was hosted by one of the Striving for Eternity theological discussions. We're glad to have you with us. And remember to strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God.